Our scripture lesson this morning comes from 1 John chapter 2, and we're going to be reading verses 15 through 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride in possessions, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. You may be seated this morning. We're continuing in this long second chapter of First John. Actually, as I did the outlining of the sermons ahead, it takes us right up to Oktoberfest. And we haven't decided what that sermon will be yet, but right up through the 11th of September, we're going to be in... First John chapter 2, there's so much here that it's a long chapter, a lot of preaching material. Before going into it again, as always, let's go to the throne of grace in prayer. Father, we would never approach you without Jesus and never could, and we wouldn't want to come before you and hear Jesus speak to your church instruction and comfort and kindness and exhortation without relying completely on him in the power of the Holy Spirit, Father. And so we pray that you'll bless us today and keep us and cause us to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Wait a minute, someone might be saying, doesn't John 3.16 say that God so loved the world? And then Elder Wayne just read from 1 John 2.15a that we are not to love the world. So what's going on here? How do we explain this? Well, John 3.16, the world is the elect world of all those that God is going to call unto himself from every nation, tribe, people, group, language, and tongue and place and first john 2:15 does not have that concept in mind now it's interesting that the very same author john under the same inspiration of the same holy spirit wrote these two epistles and used the same greek word cosmos world in very two different ways. Again, John 3.16 has to do with chosen people, and 1 John 2.15 has to do with each culture's most current idolatry, and we're going to be focusing on that today quite a bit. Now, before we even get into the sermon or the text, keep in mind that human sinners, especially religious ones, have a lust for, an absolute desire, to be loved by and accepted by the world. And this is why so many denominations and professing Christians fall into apostasy. They prefer the applause of human beings over the favor of God, who will reward them if they would be patient on the last day, and even throughout the the world. And therefore... We need to be aware of that tendency because it's in all of us fallen sinners. A desire to people please, be loved by the world, be accepted by the world, have a place in the world, have the world think well of us, think that we're cool or with them or whatever. And because of that, we ought to earnestly seek to resist this horrible tendency by making it our goal this Sabbath day to love God, sinners, and creation properly 
all in Christ. And toward that end, we're going to be studying 1 John 2, 15 through 17. I hope you all got an outline, and this is where we begin it. What it means to not love the world, the doctrine. Not loving the world is not what most people think it is. Now, I suspect many people, Christian and non-Christian, when they read words like, do not love the world, think that the Apostle John is referring to the actual objects or things found in the world, especially those that excite temptations to sin in all of us. So they think it might be a, a piece of instrumentation, something God made, something humans make, or something like that. Other people, even less enlightened, might think of the, quote, world, unquote, as the created material universe itself, so we're not supposed to love the things we can see. Now that, of course, is a a type of Gnosticism, the idea that material things are evil and spiritual things are good, and that's just not Christian at all. Neither of those notions are correct, and neither of them are what the Apostle John is teaching us today. So, for now, let us take it as a very likely fact that not loving the world is not what most people think it is. Instead, it means not loving the world's latest secular and religious fads slash idolatries. Now, a few prominent contemporary examples of this in our own American Western culture are LGBTQ, BLM, CRT, and climate and eco-pantheism. In the spirit of King David, as per his great text of Psalm 16.4, I do not like to even speak the letters of the before-mentioned sodomite heresy, since it is so despicable to God and to the souls and consciences of his regenerate saints on earth. Therefore, I will not again reference it by its code name again in this sermon. Now, David's words of the aforementioned Psalm 16.4 are these. The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. I read that a few months ago and I thought, you know... I don't even like to mention some of these things. Now, of course, it's our duty to expose them, and we do that, but we should be careful about it. When the Apostle John wrote this very epistle in the first century, their situation was no different than ours. The world was seeking to cram its current idolatries down the throats of John's beloved fellow Christian church members to whom he wrote this beautiful epistle. And John specifically mentions several of those, in their cases, heresies, and I'll mention them now. One of them was the unbelieving confederation of Jews and Romans who were aggressively promoting anti-Christ, anti-Christianity. We see this especially in verses 22 and 26 of chapter 2. Another one would be the antinomians, the do-your-own-thing people of that age, and of course we have them today. You can read about that in chapter 3, verses 4 to 10. And yet another, the world idolatry, would be an early form of docetic Gnosticism. And we perceive this quite clearly in chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. All this to say that every generation of the church and Christians, all of them, 
have had to deal with the world's idolatries and have had to confront and conquer them. And we do this in the spirit and power of Christ. And John often reminds his readers, as he does us today in the church, that we have already possessed that victory in our glorious Savior, risen from the dead, crowned in heaven, seated at the Father's right hand, Jesus Christ the King. Not loving the world is not what most people think it is. It means not loving the world's latest secular and religious fads, idolatries, which are forced on us, and with which we are expected to comply. Now, really, this is the biggest issue for you, dear saints, and as your pastor, I definitely sympathize with you. Not just our young people in college who are being bombarded with this all the time, high school, junior high, elementary school, preschool, the whole thing. It's a full-court press that's being put on you. And I definitely sympathize, but I want to encourage you, you do have the victory. This is our most germane point and issue. The world insists that we accept its false gospels, even though it pretends to be open-minded and open to other views. It's not. It's extremely closed-minded. It insists that we accept them and what they do and what they're forcing on us. And if we refuse to, they're going to try to make us pay. And that's part of suffering as a Christian. We talked about that in the adult class this morning a little bit out of 1 Peter chapter 4. So the New Testament deals with this dynamic in a lot of places. Actually, 1 Peter 4 is one great spot where it does, where the Christians who don't imbibe in all the sins of the culture are maligned and treated with disrespect and that kind of thing. And elsewhere, the Apostle Paul refers to this dynamic in various ways, including calling the author of the world's passions the, quote, prince of the power of the air, Ephesians 2, 2b, an obvious allusion to Satan, and referring to the nature of these world idolatry fads that are being crammed down our throats as Doctrines of demons, as per 1 Timothy 4, 1b. So the problem that we have in this world is a very practical one, and that is the pressure, the enormous amount of pressure that is applied to us as Christians to conform to the world. The Apostle Paul dealt with this also in Romans 12 at verse Two, where he exhorted Christian churchmen not to be conformed to the world and then gave the divine antidote to how not to be conformed to the world by the transformation of the renewal of our minds. So we have to keep our minds in Christ and be one community together. And as we do that, we are able to withstand the terrible, oppressive, demonic, palpable force being pressed upon us from every angle, even these days. So the struggle with the world is really the epic one for us Christ lovers down here in this life. That's really where the action is. But if we can view it positively even as per Deacon Brian's words about being able to rejoice in suffering, I think of James 1, 2 through 
3. Count it all joy, brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, that you might be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If we can view it in a positive way, the Romans 8.28, God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him, those called according to his purpose, then... We can see it as a training ground into Christ-likeness, though it is extremely difficult, very challenging, very, very scary at times. And it is something that we need Jesus and his church in order to endure. But it serves our better nature, the nature of Christ. Let's look at the verses. 1 John two fifteen through 17, and consider and thoroughly grasp Why not loving the world is such a hugely significant teaching, H-U-G-E-L-Y, hugely. Unlike last Sunday's cuddly text, I hope if you were here, (laughs) not all all of you weren't, but last Sunday we had a cuddly warm text. Oh boy, no exhortation, no correction, no discipline. I think John was just buttering up his hearers for what he has to tell them here, in a good way, in a sanctified way, of course. And so in today's lesson, it's rough and tumble. It ain't cuddly, okay? And you know I don't use the word ain't very often. So I'm, by God's grace, going to try to give you some spiritual rationale for two things. Number one for why you should not cave in to this enormous pressure that the world is applying to you at your jobs, in your schools, in your culture, in your neighborhood. It's the prince of the power of the air. It's the spirit of the age pressing in on you at every turn. Why you shouldn't, number one. And then why resisting it with all your heart in the power of Jesus Christ is glorifying to God, good for the church, and beneficial to every human being, even the reprobate, who will never embrace Jesus Christ. I'm going to try to convince you of that. Let's now investigate why not loving the world is such a hugely significant teaching first, because doing so is evidence of perdition, P-E-R-D-I-T-I-O-N, verse 15. I'll explain that in a minute. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Perdition is analogous to hell, to damnation, to condemnation, to being completely cut off from the source of life, which is the person of Jesus Christ in the context of the church through the agency of the gospel. To not have, quote, the love of the Father in oneself, unquote, is to have the love of the world in oneself. So every human being either has the love of the Father in oneself or the love of the world in oneself. And there is no in-between. This state of being in the world, loving the world, is a state of death. Now what does John mean when he mentions the, quote, things in the world? You see that? The things in the world. Does he mean cars and houses and money? and even the finer articles of life? Is that what John means? No, he does not mean that. Not at all. From the context, what John really means is this, that because we are fallen creatures in Adam, we had Elder Wayne read those passages from Genesis 1 and then Genesis 3, we have perverted all the good things God created good, 
And in our fall, in our unregeneracy, we twist them for our own wicked ends and our own terrible goals. These idolatries then become the things in the world. Okay, so it's not what God created. We're not Gnostics. We believe everything God created is good. We read about that in 1 Timothy chapter 6, the first part of it. Everything God created is good. But we twist it and pervert it. Now, those who love the world cannot and do not love God the Father, the Heavenly Father, the first person of the Holy Trinity, And those who do not love the Father, who he can only be loved through the Son, Jesus Christ, the one mediator between God and man, 1 Timothy 2.5, they are unregenerate, which means they're not born again, which means they don't have any life in them, which means the Holy Spirit has not applied the atonement of Jesus Christ to them, no matter how much religion or passion they possess. Everyone, as I mentioned earlier, either loves the Father through Christ or the world. There are no other alternatives. So we're considering why not loving the world is such a hugely significant teaching. This is really, really, really important, as you can imagine. All the Bible is. But this one we really feel, don't we? And it's because doing so is evidence of perdition and because... Doing so exposes a corrupt heart, verse 16. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. So the religious people that we all know who give in to the broader world's newest causes and passions like to fancy themselves often as being courageous or valiant or even noble. When in actual fact, in truth, they are revealing their true nature to be decrepit, and more importantly than that, loathed by Almighty God, who despises them, even more than those people who don't claim any religious affiliation at all. Of course, everyone's religious and believes in God. So the issue here in verse 16, as you often hear from this pulpit, is an issue of the heart or The inclinations of the heart. Desires. Desires is the word that's used here. The, quote, desires of the flesh, unquote, are the unbridled passions of a sinful soul, getting, or so it seems, or thinks, all that it wants, either in deed or in thought. The desires of the eyes, quote, unquote, is the beholding of God's creation, and instead of using it for his glory and honor, to covet everything for one's own sinful use and ends. And the, quote, pride of life, unquote, is just that, pride. The attempt to live in God's world with no reference to him, as if that was possible. And it is appropriate that many of God's enemies call their movement a pride one, very appropriately. As the end of verse 16 says, none of this comes from the Father, but it comes from the world. And the world is what's pressing these things upon us today. Why not loving the world is such a hugely significant teaching. Because doing so is evidence of perdition, exposes a corrupt heart, and finally... 
Because doing so is the height of foolishness. Verse 17, And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Now I think verse 17 is the key verse of this section of Scripture, pericope of teaching and preaching. And certainly this verse 17 is very good news for the faithful redeemed church. Very good. Think about this, dear saints, just from a sanctified logic. How wise is it to seek to get one's own way on earth for a few years, or maybe even a few decades, and then die and discover on the judgment day that all of what you did and aspired to do on earth, to quote verse 17a, passed away, was no longer even remembered. Remembering that sin doesn't even have a positive essence in itself. It just goes away. It evaporates. Nothing is left. How wise is it to live that way? And then on top of that, for all eternity, after you've spent a few years or a few decades doing your own thing and thinking that you're your own God, you end up in an eternity in hell. And that is a serious thing. And that's what the Bible teaches. On the other hand, the person who loves the Father through the Son in the power of the Holy Spirit, and who hence then, quoting verse 17b, does the will of God, though having to suffer in this world and endure the pain and the agony of resisting the world's pressures, that person, even having to suffer for a few years or even decades, ends up, quote, abiding forever according to verse 17, in and as God's church in the community of the saints. So which of these two persons gets the better deal? The one who did his own thing for a few years or a few decades and everything passes away? Or the one who loves God in Jesus Christ and suffers a bit? Undoubtedly, no question about it but then has an abiding forever in God, in glory, in Christ, as the church. The answer is obvious. So what does our willingness to suffer for a little while here prove? Well, it proves the genuineness of our faith in Christ. And as you can imagine, there aren't many people, percentage-wise, that are willing to do that. Only the elect can do it, and those who are in covenant in the faithful church. Is it easy to tangle with the world, dears? Do, do you think I think what you go through on a weekly basis is easy? No. And then, by the way, do I feel it too? You better believe I do. I'm sure you all do. It's very tough. And frankly, there's a lot that can be lost. I mean, they can take it from us. No question about it. But our benefits in Christ more than make up for all of that in this world as well as the one to come. And let's remember, as much as we have grown to appreciate and almost take for granted lots of freedoms and privileges we've always had and they're being taken away from us, those aren't guaranteed. We have been given something special over a long time. And they're going away. They probably will. And there isn't much left if there's anything left. 
And yet, our hope is not in America, not in Western culture, not in money, not in culture, not in any of that stuff. Our hope is in Jesus Christ and his kingdom. Now, we don't give up. We push against them. We destroy them. We fight them. We conquer them. We take them down. We kill them spiritually. We assault them violently in our prayers. And if we don't, we're not doing our job. It has to start with me, and I hope you do it too. Go after these enemies of God and bring them down. That is your role, and that's your privilege. Let's do a little more application today and firmly understand why the true church must never love the world. Now, I might be so bold as to state something that I personally believe theologically, and that is this. Not only must the forgiven church never love the world, which is clearly being taught here in 1 John 2.15, but that the atoned-for ecclesia or church never will love the world. Ironically, Elder Craig basically said the same thing Thursday night at our session deacon meeting, that it's impossible for the redeemed to give in to it. We can't. I mean, we'd rather die than give in to it. Do we want to die? No, not really. But we would rather die than to give in to it. You can always tell a true Christian from a false one via an easy test. Do they or do they not love the world as it manifests itself in its most current idolatries? And again, the devil is not very creative. He just reworks his idolatries from generation to generation, and people imbibe them. So in another 20 years, there'll be a new set of them, if we're still around in another 20 years, whatever. Um, And, of course, he goes down and down and down. I've taught you this before. Transgenderism devolves to transspeciesism, to animals, to plants, to rocks, to demons. So if they're allowed to continue this trend, that's where it would end up. And there's just no end. It's a black hole of wickedness. Now, will God allow that to go that far? I hope not. And, of course, we want the church to pray for the revival of the true religion and also the salvation of the elect that are caught up in these idolatries, just like we used to be. Because we also were dead in trespasses and sins, at enmity with God and hating him until he arrested us in our sin and sovereignly brought us to himself by saving grace in Christ. So for now, let us concentrate on why the true church must never love the world. First, because doing so is the diametrical opposite of loving God and fallen sinners. Now, it's ironic to me that often religious people jump on the latest idolatrous cultural bandwagons actually thinking, that whether this is sincere or just complete delusion, that they are actually loving people in their culture, their community, or their world. So they jump on the bandwagon, your lifestyle's fine, I love you, blah, blah. And they actually think, I think they think, I mean they're deluded, but they probably do. They think they're actually loving the world. But on the day of judgment, they'll realize that they were actually hating those people and doing them a horrible disservice 
by not calling them to be human beings created in the image of God, and even more than that, recreated in the image of Christ in the new birth. Are we passionate about these things? There's, if we really want to love our fellow fallen human, sinful human beings, do we? And that's a big if. All right, everybody ready to answer that? Do we want to love our fallen, sinful, fellow, fallen human beings? Uh, one of the ways we're going to do that next month, Lord willing, is bring Jesus right into the heart of our community and preach him in the open air to any and all who will hear by God's grace. If we do, then we must first love God in Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, loving the Father and the Spirit, and through this devotion to the Holy Trinity, fostered in the loving community of the covenant of the church, and then armed with the gospel of God's free grace in Christ, we can and actually will really love and care for fallen, lost human sinners who are outside of Christ in desperate, terrible straits. They don't know it, but we can care for them. But this, dears, is a tough lesson to learn, and a lot of people, lots of Christians, never get it. And it's a whole lot easier to give in to the world and just want to be loved by it. But that comes with a great price. The person who makes him or herself God's enemy, or one who wishes to make themselves God's foe, have an easy way of it. All they have to do is love the world in its most current idolatries. And you, then, will be in the crosshairs of Almighty God, who bends his bow to bring down his adversaries in his good time. But if we really, truly know and love God and care for sinners, then we will love the God-man Jesus Christ and be willing to suffer a little bit in this world especially from the pressures and stresses that are being placed on us. Why the true church must never love the world, because doing so is the diametrical opposite of loving God and fallen sinners, and it is to be more in league, L-E-A-G-U-E, league with Satan than with Christ. The world system, as we intimated earlier, is run by the, quote, prince of the power of the air, Ephesians 2, 2b, who is the defeated, thrashing, violent, rage-filled dragon called Lucifer, who is in his death throes and has been ever since the end times began upon Jesus Christ putting his heel upon Satan's head, as per Genesis 3.16 read earlier, 3.15 read earlier, where he crushed Satan's head, and Satan's been in his death throes. In the damned and the unregenerate, the old snake still controls under God's sovereignty the spirit of the age. And to quote again from Paul from verse 2c of Ephesians chapter 2, that spirit is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That is the pressure that you're feeling every day in this culture. All of it comes from this wicked source. Now the question is for us, dear saints, should we fear Satan and his human and demonic allies who are all arrayed against us? No. Christ has conquered them, and we in him have defeated them too. 
Please rest again in this great gospel truth and text taken from the same epistle, 1 John chapter 5, verse 4b and 5, which reads, And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Beloved, what it means to not love the world. You know, there is an appropriate way to love the world, by loving God first and foremost. But we cannot, must not, and if we are regenerate, we will not love the world. I know this teaching is relevant for you today. The whole body of the church everywhere needs to hear it, to imbibe it deeply, to realize even when it scares you and your heart shakes and you're not sure what's going to happen, take comfort in your shield, your rock, your redeemer, your refuge, the great strong Savior who has suffered also for us and shed his precious blood for us, and has risen from the dead for us, and gloriously been raised to the Father's right hand. Is it easy, dears? It's not. This is your suffering in this world. It's not all of your suffering, but it's a big part. But please, show yourselves to be true Christians, and never give in, cave in, to the love of the world. If you do, you don't love God and you don't love fellow sinners. And you certainly don't love your own heart. So there's a lot at stake. But because of the grace of God, now we know much better what it means not to love the world. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that you, you don't pull any punches. You have John write these tender words about little children and fathers and young men. And you say all these wonderfully positive things, and then you, you instruct us in not loving the world, how, how dangerous that whole doctrine is, how important it is. We pray that we would, by your grace, be able to love Jesus Christ and love people and your creation in its proper order as per our aim for today. In Christ Jesus alone, whose name we pray, amen.